There's a common theme that runs in many of our most familiar, beloved stories. Take, for instance, uh, Cinderella and Snow White, uh, living blissfully as daddy's girls until daddy married evil stepmothers. Or Dorothy and Toto skipping along happily on the yellow brick road with the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow heading off to see the wonderful Wizard of Oz until they run into the Wicked Witch of the West. Robin Hood was a loyal supporter of his king, Richard the Lionhearted, but when Richard went off to fight in the Crusades, well, now Robin had to deal with an evil local Prince John and his stooge, the Sheriff of Nottingham. Hansel and Gretel took a walk in the woods, found a cottage made of gingerbread, then discovered an evil witch lived inside. Little Red Riding Hood went off to visit her grandmother and then noticed, Grandma, what big eyes you have, what big teeth you have. It wasn't Grandma, it was the wolf. And similarly, as we've been talking about the Bible as a story, the Israelites were living blessed lives in Goshen, in the land of Egypt, under the grateful protection of Pharaoh. The Israelites, of course, were the relatives of Joseph, who had saved, Israel, saved Egypt and Israel from a terrible famine. But then when we come to Exodus chapter 1, there's a new Pharaoh, a new king. Exodus 1.8, now a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And things start to go downhill quickly for the Israelites. Do you see in each one of these stories, things are going along nicely. There's, it's, it's a peaceful, joyful story until the intrusion of evil which messes things up for everyone. Now, now, we don't know how long the distance was in time between the end of Exodus, uh, Genesis chapter 50, the end of the book of Genesis, and Exodus 1. We, we don't know what the time span was, but during those years, the Israelites had grown in number significantly. As, as we end Genesis chapter 50, it's a tribe of about 70 people. But by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, they have grown numerically. Exodus 1-7 says the Israelites were fertile and became populous. They multiplied and grew dramatically, filling the whole land. Well, they hadn't only grown. They hadn't only become populous. In the eyes of the new king, the new pharaoh, they had become too numerous. And that threatened him. In verse 9, it says the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they'll only grow in number. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight us. Now, there's a, an interesting word back in Exodus 1.8. The new king didn't know Joseph. It implies relationship. The the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, didn't know 
the Israelites. Apparently, he didn't know the story of why the Israelites had come to live in the land. He didn't know the importance of Joseph in Egypt's story. He didn't know that this was God's chosen people. He didn't know the Israelites' gratitude. He held them at a distance. And when we don't know someone, we can begin to have questions and doubts about who they are. We can begin to fear them. Pharaoh only saw their number. They're they're more numerous than we are. They could be more powerful than we are. Pharaoh was threatened by people that he didn't personally know. He only saw danger. That sounded all familiar. Then in verse 11, it says, The Egyptians put foremen over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they grew. The Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, forcing them to do all kinds of cruel work. Now, let's be clear. The Israelites haven't done anything wrong. They simply are living peacefully in the land, and they have grown in numbers, but their number is a threat. There haven't been crimes. There haven't been rebellions. They they haven't run down the neighborhood. They're not taxing the Egyptian economy. He's just scared of their numbers. And fear brings out the worst in us. In this case, fear led to hate. Notice the progression in this story. When, When Pharaoh looks at the numbers, he says, there's just too many of them. They're, 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 they're growing, they're outnumbering us. They, they could turn against us. And fear led to harassment. And what began as fear in the heart of Pharaoh led to a feeling of disgust and dread among all the Egyptians. And that fear, that Disgust, that dread, led to their enslavement, led to their forced labor, and it even said to cruel treatment just because Pharaoh feared them. When when fear becomes the lens by which we look at a person, it distorts everything. We don't see who they are anymore. We see who we fear they could be their danger to me, their threat to my way of life. It transforms neighbors into potential enemies. It was Pharaoh's fear that led to hatred. And hatred so often leads to dehumanization. When we see someone as less than human, or in the words of Jesus, when we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves, well then, we can justify all kinds of behaviors, all kinds of attitudes, all kinds of prejudices. It was the, the, the fear of these Israelites that led to the unjust treatment and cruelty that was inflicted upon them, including their enslavement. So let's talk about slavery. 
we're familiar with slavery in the United States. We have our own dark legacy of slavery here. Now, slavery, as we read about it in Exodus 1, and slavery, as we read about it in the American history books, are very different in many ways. But in both cases, it it was the cause of the dehumanization of people. In Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, he writes, the economic impulse for slavery can never be separated from the racist ideas that typecast enslaved Africans as dangerous. As dangerous. Now, in America, we justified slavery for economic reasons, but also if you read the history Oftentimes, African Americans to this day, people of color, minorities, have been typecast, portrayed as dangerous. And so we need to control the potential danger. Let's be clear, Pharaoh didn't need free labor. He didn't need to build in the city of Ramses. He did so in order to oppress people he feared. In the same way, much of the oppression that happens within our own nation today is rooted in a fear of others, often people that we do not know. Well, even in this time of oppression, even in this time of of suffering for the Israelite slaves, they continued to grow in number, and that continued to increase the fear and dread within Pharaoh's heart. And so Pharaoh does the unthinkable. Pharaoh goes to the midwives who will be present at the birth of Israelite children and he orders that every baby, every male baby, every male Israelite baby was to be killed. Now thankfully, the the midwives defy Pharaoh. We'll talk more about that next week. Saving the Israelites. But just think of that for a moment. What What kind of fear and dread would lead to the ordering of the murder of innocent children? This was the first attempted Jewish holocaust, but as we know, it wouldn't be the last. Think about it. What has to happen in the heart of a person or people that would lead to the dehumanization of others that would cause them to justify extermination. As you've heard me share before, I've been working for many years in a village in Guatemala called Chantala. Chantala is inhabited by indigenous Mayan people. Well, between the mid-1960s and the mid-1990s, there was a terrible, violent civil war in Guatemala largely between the Guatemalan army on one side and a group of guerrillas on the other who were indigenous Mayan people. But not all indigenous Mayan people were guerrillas. In fact, most were neither supportive of the government or the guerrillas. They just wanted to be left alone and to live in peace. And that was true in Chantala. But guerrillas would sometimes show up and demand support, saying, we, we are fighting for you. 
and take what they wanted. And then the government would find out and say, you're aiding and abetting the enemy, and they would punish. In fact, it was determined in the early 80s that the best solution for the government was what they called a scorched earth policy. Destroy villages. Kill Mayans, whether they're guerrilla or not. We, we can't know for sure. It's believed that nearly a quarter of a million indigenous Mayans were killed in, a, in just a, a several years in the early 80s. That includes Chantala. Nearly a third of the village was slaughtered. Many beheaded with machetes. Uh, many left in mass graves. Fathers of some of my friends, husbands of some of my friends. At one point, the government suspected some of collaboration. They gathered about 40, took them into the Methodist church, locked the door, and called a helicopter to bomb the church, killing all inside. My friends continue to live with that painful legacy. What causes humans to dehumanize other humans? Fear. What causes us to see humans in the same way we might see rodents in our home or, or insects that we call the exterminator to come and remove or, or weeds that need to be pulled out of the garden? How is it possible humans could value other human lives so little. It's fear. It's fear. It's irrational fear. Irrational fear that leads to hate. And hate dehumanizes. And we have to acknowledge this is part of our own American history and legacy. Just in recent months, we've seen protests, Black Lives Matters protests, many peaceful, some violent in response to, to decades, many decades of unfair, unjust laws, unfair systems, persons in power who have treated them unfairly. And even since the protests, some have had their eyes open and see that there are changes that need to happen in our country, in our world, but others have seen the violence and used it to increase our sense of fear, placing the blame back on those who have so often been the victim, leading even to greater hatred and division. We have today some of the same societal and systemic sins that plagued the Israelites back in Exodus chapter 1. And they will continue to be with us as long as we view people through the lens of fear. As long as we see people as less than human, as a threat to us, we will continue to justify attitudes and systems that are dehumanizing. The question for us, as people of faith, as people whose lives are rooted in Scripture, who, whose people whose lives are defined by following Jesus of Nazareth, as people called the new Israel, in our lives, will we side with Pharaoh and power and privilege? Or will we take the side of the oppressed and the hurting and join in the fight for justice? 
Will we join with Pharaoh in attempting to maintain the status quo, which, which only benefits the privileged majority, of which many times we are part? Or will we use our place of privilege and power to confront our own complicity and to fight for needed change in our societies? Will we turn a blind eye to the plight of others? Or will we open our eyes? Will we know the hurting and the oppressed so that we can come to their aid? Now, now friends, I, I know this is political. I know I'm, I'm dipping my toes into politics, and that's an uncomfortable thing. But please hear me, just because we make it political doesn't make it also deeply spiritual. This issue of justice is a deeply spiritual issue. We as people of faith, people who value the teachings of Scripture, are taught and believe that every human, every human, Regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, ability, sexuality, nationality, age, income level, education, legal status, or anything else, every man, woman, or child is created in the image and likeness of God and endowed by their creator with human dignity and worth. It's one of the things I love about being Methodist. We believe in the sacred worth of every person. Friends, will we fight for the sacred worth of every person? Or will we be Pharaoh? Now, let's talk about this a little further theologically and spiritually. The word that we use to describe the, the, the behavior of Pharaoh is sin. The racism that has existed far too long in our country and other places in the world is sin. Whether it's personal racism or societal racism or institutional racism, it is what it is. It is sin. There's nothing else we can call it. But it's not the only sin. Hate is a sin. Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you hate, you have murdered. Injustice is sin. Apathy is sin. This is how this ancient story of Exodus 1 relates to us today. Israel's enslavement relates to the bigger story of the Bible and to us. Because this is a story of institutionalized sin which infects all of us. Now, next week we'll start to tell the story of of Moses, who God sends to rescue the Israelite slaves. But that won't be the end of their slavery. When you come to the prophets, we, we discover that the, the Babylonians invade Israel and Jerusalem and take the captives away as slaves. In Jesus' own day, the, the Roman Empire has come and, and has taken the entire nation as captives. They are slaves. And then along comes Jesus, who starts talking about a different kind of slavery. We see in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in his own home synagogue, and one day he's chosen to, to offer the message. He picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor. 
to proclaim release to the prisoners, recovery of the sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus looked at everyone and said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus made this his personal mission statement, the freedom of the oppressed, the release of the captives. What kind of captives? What kind of oppressed? What kind of freedom? Clearly, Jesus opposed the, the, the oppression of all peoples. He opposes it to this day and calls us as his followers to fight against oppression and injustice. But if you continue reading in the Gospels, you get the sense that Jesus is also talking about something more spiritual and more personal. In John 8, 34, he says, I assure you that everyone who sins is a slave, there's the word, to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul would echo that saying that anyone who says uh, they're without sin is a liar. Actually, that's First uh, John. Jesus, Paul says all fall short of the glory of God because all sin. Jesus says all of us are slaves. Sometimes that slavery is our complicity in corporate, societal, institutional forms of sin like racism. And sometimes it's more personal. It's more individual. It's the sins that I commit every day. Both enslave us. Our participation in, in the, the grander projects of sin in our world, the systemic evil in our world, and my personal rebellion. Sin enslaves. Both kinds of sin enslaves. It enslaves me, but also my sin enslaves others who become a victim of my sin. Sin dehumanizes. Dehumanizes me, but it also dehumanizes others. Sin oppresses myself and others. Sin entraps me and others. Sin destroys myself, and others. Paul said the wages of sin is death. You see, what Jesus did here is he's broadened our understanding of slavery to include the way sin enslaves us. Sometime the enslaver is a modern form of Pharaoh and those who participate complicitly with Pharaoh. Sometimes we in our sinfulness, our selfishness, become the enslavers of others. Often, we're responsible for enslaving ourselves. The old Anglican prayer of confession says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done, and we have done those things we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. As Jesus interprets slavery, this ancient story of Israel becomes a little less ancient. It becomes our story. When we intentionally or unintentionally 
participate in the dehumanization of others, we become like the new Pharaoh, fearing others, fear that leads to hate, hate that justifies injustice. And when our own sin enslaves us, we become like the Israelite slaves. If you've been tracking along with us through the series, this is our story. We've talked about the significance of the fall. This story and the echoes that continue on in our modern world are evidence of the effects of the fall and the need for God's redemption. So you might ask, where is God in this story? Thus far in Exodus chapter 1, God hasn't been mentioned. What's God doing as his people are suffering? They're supposed to be blessed. They're they're his chosen people. What is God doing? Where is God today? Well, part of the answer to that question, we have to turn to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. A man named Moses, a shepherd, is guiding his flocks through the mountains, and he encounters a bush all aflame. And a voice says, I've seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. Now go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Where is God? God is never far away. God knows our sin. And God knows our suffering. God hears our cries. And God responds. For more of that, I hope you'll come back next week.